This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to your stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, send us your stories, and we'll produce them, and we'll put them right up on the air. The American people have beautiful stories to tell, and we tell so many of them. And today, we seek to honor those who served our country and even given their lives. We have Joy Neal Kidney sharing her uncle's story. Joy is one of our listeners from 1040 AM WHO in Des Moines, and it's a powerhouse signal, one of the great heritage signals in this country. And she's contributed to our show before, and today we hear from her again. Her piece is titled, Donald Wilson, the Humble Hero. Most of the heroes among us are just ordinary people, like my uncle Don. I knew him as mom's brother, who lived way out in Washington State, and who liked fishing. When I was a kid growing up on an Iowa farm, the best part of getting a fat letter from Aunt Rose was a picture of Uncle Don with a big salmon. Mom's older brother had been a commercial fisherman. Even when he later took a job with the Washington Department of Transportation, he still headed out with his boat on Willapa Bay every chance he got. So every fishing season, we get snapshots of him, with a huge fish hanging from one hand and a fishing pole in the other. Dressed in faded jeans and a plaid shirt, usually a vest with lots of pockets. Sometimes a U.S. Navy cap, either the USS Hancock or the Yorktown. Although Mom rarely mentioned the war, World War II, She told us that her brother Don, who grew up in the small town of Dexter, Iowa, had been a sailor on the famous Yorktown, the one lost during a big battle in the Pacific Ocean, and that he had had to tread water for an hour before being rescued. Every few years, Uncle Don and Aunt Rose would drive back to Iowa to visit. I was unaware of all the other combat he'd survived, all the heartache he'd been through, all the complexity of this seemingly ordinary man. As teenagers, Sis Gloria and I traveled by train with Grandma to the West Coast to visit relatives, including Don and Rose. In 1962, they lived in a little house out along the Nacelle River. As soon as they learned we were coming, Uncle Don added a room to their home, an indoor bathroom. Since Aunt Rose didn't drive, they had only a pickup. One foggy day, we joined a crowd of clam diggers and carried our limit home to try fried clams and to make clam chowder. Digging them was more fun than eating them for farm girls used to Iowa beef and pork. Years later, I learned that not only had Uncle Don been on the historic Yorktown during the Battle of Midway, but that he'd had to abandon ship twice. He spent an hour in the oily Pacific after Japanese bombs had crippled the ship. The next day, the aircraft carrier was listing, dead in the water, but still afloat. A few dozen men reboarded the battered ship for a salvage attempt. One of them was 25-year-old Donald Wilson. After doing repairs all morning on a lower level of the ship, he clambered up to the deck for something to eat. An alarm blared. Don jumped up and saw torpedoes in the water 
speeding right at his ship. One slammed into them. He ran to the fantail and leaped a second time. A nearby ship rescued him and other survivors. The next morning, sailors asleep on the deck were nudged awake as the carrier began to sink, her battle flags still flying. Many of them wept as they stood at attention to witness their ship roll over and plunge into the ocean. Donald Wilson first joined the Navy with his older brother in 1934. During the Great Depression, where there were no jobs for teenagers, not even for their father. Don stayed in the Navy and in 1937 became a plank owner on the brand new Yorktown, meaning he was a member of the crew when it was placed in commission. I served on her 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 whole life, Don later wrote of the ship. He later received a citation signed by Admiral Chester Nimitz for being part of that salvage attempt. I'd written to Uncle Don and Aunt Rose for decades, but after Grandma died and getting to read the family's war letters, I started a correspondence with Uncle Don that lasted the rest of his life. I wanted to make sure he had all the medals he was entitled to. He said he didn't want any, that he was no hero and wasn't interested in medals. That is until I learned there was one for that citation. When he finally received it, he proudly framed all of his medals and ribbons. Uncle Don was also a plank owner on the USS Hancock, another aircraft carrier. The Hancock was in combat in nearly every major naval battle during those last desperate months of the Pacific War, except when out of action for repairs after being attacked by a kamikaze. All five Wilson brothers of Dallas County, Iowa, served in World War II. The three youngest, Dale, Danny, and Junior, lost their lives, two of them in combat. Their surviving family members never got over the blows of losing these three young pilots, including their older brother, Don. Still in the Navy after the war, he decided he didn't want to make it a career after all. He was ready for some peace and quiet and a fishing pole. No one would suspect that the ordinary man in the snapshots with the big fish was indeed a hero one with a poignant history. And thanks so much for that. We're listening to Joy Neal Kidney's story, her Uncle Don's story, and there are so many like this across this great country. Send yours to OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we love our American Dreamer series. We brought you a lot of them, stories of entrepreneurs who've overcome really difficult odds to create companies, create jobs, create a tax base, 
It's the American dream, folks, getting out there and starting something, whether you're Steve Jobs or whether you've got the local auto body shop and you're employing some people and doing what you love, a restaurant, whatever. And as always, our American Dreamers series are brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network who are out there fighting for public policies that make sense for helping small business owners grow their businesses into bigger ones. And today's story, like so many of them, is a real stemwinder because growing a business is no duck walk. And they face mortal, mortal moments where they think everything's lost. We think they're as good as police procedurals, these stories. And our own Alex Cortez brings us today's story on a member of the Job Creators Network, Bob Luddy, the founder of Captivare, the nation's leading manufacturer of commercial kitchen ventilation systems. And this story is a real stemwinder. If you think about people that come into the company today, they see a very prosperous company. That's all they know about the company. If you go back to the early days, you'd have a, quite a different picture. And that every day was, can we survive one more day? That was the mission every single day. In the early 80s, we were in somewhat of a recession. We switched our payroll to monthly. I thought if we paid at the end of the month, surely we would be able to collect enough money during the month where payroll will not be an issue. Well, it turned out it was a big issue June 30th, 1980, because we had a $30,000 payroll with $2,000 in the bank. I even think back and I wonder how I finessed this. Basically, I told the employees, which was about 18 in number, that we were not able to make our payroll today for technical reasons. That's all I told them. And they mostly went along with it. They really didn't cause a lot of grief about it. So Monday went by, no money. And then Tuesday night, I had already received the mail. I decided to go back to the post office at 8 p.m., and there was a check for $28,000 from the Golden Corral, almost precisely to the dollar what I needed to make that payroll. So essentially, I was bailed out by a major customer who, in this case, paid their bill early. Go figure. It speaks very highly of your employees that they didn't really ask what the technical reason was. I, I'm pretty sure my wife would have uh, asked, yeah. what, do you, what do you mean a technical reason? Like, <laughs> you earn that money and I have bills to pay here. Didn't you ask him what the technical reason was? You know, in a modern context, I can't even imagine that I could get away with that. I mean, people would be crazy. But somehow we did. Bob writes in his book, I'd done everything humanly possible to save the company. So now all that remained was the grace of God. I mean, I have a great trust in God that if we do our part and we ask for help, he will provide that help. And I think if I didn't have that belief in God, it would be a lot harder to function in the marketplace. One of the things I think you find very interesting in the market is that these companies that are Christian-based, Chick-fil-A is maybe a primary example, they're enormously successful in the market. People admire them, and people want to do business with them. In our construction business, a lot of things go on that shouldn't go on, and we've never participated in them. One of our veteran sales guys called me one day and said, Bob, I figured out why we're so successful. I said, well, tell me why. He says, because we're a legitimate company. 
we do things honestly, correctly, we don't play games, and the marketplace appreciates the way we do business. And what? Hallelujah. And if you think about today, the trouble individuals get into because they violate human decency, basic Ten Commandments, common law, is enormous. Conversely, the ones who are legitimate just continue to do better and better all the time because that's what the market wants. That's who they're going to do business with. Lessons that Bob began learning not too long after coming out of the womb. His Pennsylvania family didn't have much money and had 10 mouths to feed. It was competitive even in eating because we had a limited amount of food. So you better be at the table and get your share or you may end up short of food that day. So to get money, Bob had to make his own. Starting in elementary school, he delivered newspapers, shoveled snow, and babysat. And at age 11, he was working on a bread truck on weekends. Eventually, worked in the drugstore during high school. The pharmacist was my mentor, teaching me the basic skills of business, uh, retail, inventory, delivery, dealing with customers who were difficult. Uh, it's almost as if I should have been paying him. This idea of first job is much more important in terms of learning life skills than actually making any money. And yet it's been turned around now that you should be paid a minimum of $15 an hour. Well, I don't know what $0.85 cents an hour would be today, maybe 10 bucks. Actually, it would be even less, $7.15. If minimum wage were $15, I never got that job. It would have made a profound, profoundly negative impact on my life. So I think that very, very often in modern contexts, whether it's the news media, consultants, academics, they really turn life upside down. And if you think about it, when I grew up in the 50s, life was a little different, a little bit less regulated. You couldn't work on a bread truck today at age 11. They put mom in jail for child abuse. But it was an important part of my life. Nobody got hurt. Everybody seemed to be a winner. So allowing parents to make decisions and allowing individuals to find the best that they can within the market they exist is important. And it's precluded now by massive regulation, misconceptions, etc. Bob went on to college, and he didn't particularly want to. He didn't like school. But his dad wanted all the kids to go, so that's what he did. And after two years, he really wanted to get out. So this 20-year-old decided that buying into a fiberglass business was what he ought to do to stay sane. Fast forward nine years. By this time, Bob had been drafted into the Vietnam War, forced to sell his company to serve, And now was married and working in L.A. until he just couldn't stand the traffic any longer. And so he researched the areas of the country most likely to grow economically. And they'd move to one of them. And he chose Raleigh, North Carolina. It was a leap. I had no contacts, no job, didn't know anybody. When I got here, I thought maybe this wasn't the smartest idea in the world. Bob applied to every single job that was listed in the newspaper. And after two months of this, someone finally called and offered him an opportunity. 
to sell fire suppression systems to restaurants. He did well, purchased their first home, and had his first kid until the CEO made a Sunday announcement to the sales team. Our pay was going to get cut about one-third. So I was making 30000 a year. Now I'm going to make 20000 a year. And my initial thought was I ought to be able to make 20000 a year on my own. Starting his own similar business. The second thought was I'm not well prepared. I don't have capital. I should have been more prepared for this day, but I'm, I'm not. And then I had a third thought, essentially said, look, there's times in your life when you have to take major risks, and this is one of those times. And if you fail to take that risk, other opportunities may come along, but this is your time to go. I think one of the things that came out of that is the fact that knowing that the, the risks were extremely high, I knew I'd have to go to all extreme possible efforts to make this thing work. I decided to use my home phone so I didn't have to do anything there. I got some business cards printed, and by Saturday, I made my first installation. So from Sunday, working for a company, to the following, the end of the week, I went from being employed to being self-employed. The nature of how I learned to do things, particularly for my mother, is she called it tomorrow never comes, meaning that if you're not doing it today, you're probably never going to do it. Even today, I do it today, I do it immediately. If this is a good idea, I want to hear about it now. Versus the bureaucratic mind that says, yeah, we're going to do that, I'll put on my list, I'll contemplate it. I'm much more of a person of action. And so that action allowed us to get underway right away. And the first check I received from the Saturday installation bounced. And when we come back, more of this American Dreamer's story, Bob Luddy's story, here on Our American Stories. We continue with our American Dreamers segment, Bob Luddy, and the founder of Captivair, the nation's leading manufacturer of commercial kitchen ventilation systems. And by the way, we heard some really remarkable stories about how we almost didn't make it. Well, we continue now with the story. He's already shaken up one industry, and a few unintentional experiences would lead him to try and shake up another. I had a woman who worked part-time taking care of my children after school, and she needed some more work, so I told her to come over to the office. We didn't really know what to do with her, so I said, well, have her do filing. So someone came to me and said, well, she's not able to do filing. And I said, no, come on, anybody can do filing. Just show her how to do it, she'll be fine. And what we figured out is she didn't know her ABCs. So that was my first inkling that I was clueless. Later on in our shop, we realized that individuals could use a tape measure if it was 
increments of one inch. But if it was one inch and one sixteenth, they couldn't read it conceptually. They didn't understand it. And I thought, how, how is it possible that someone could graduate from high school, but they couldn't do fractions? They didn't understand fractions. That was my second clue. And I thought, as a society, this is a disgrace because we always say that we love our children, we want the best for them, we want them to have good education. But we support a public school system that only really educates about 25% of the students, and culturally destroys close to 100% of them. So Bob decided to do something about it. First, he took up North Carolina's Education Commission on becoming their co-chairman. My take-home was that academics will discuss any topic at nauseum. But they have no intention of really changing. They just like academic discussions. So at some point that came to an end without any great success. And so Bob decided to try something else. In 1997, I ran for school board as a reform candidate. I won the first round, but in the second round, narrowly lost, which turned out to be a great blessing. And I decided to open a public charter school. Charter schools are public schools that are allowed more freedom to innovate. In the first weeks when I announced that we were going to have Franklin Academy, one of the local school board members came to me with me and he said, well, I want to inform you that nobody's going to go to your school except a few malcontents and misfits, and there'll be darn few of those. But we opened with 160 kids. Even better, the students liked it. They loved coming to school. So as we went forward, our waiting list began to grow. The state law requires that you have a lottery for admission. A game of chance, where students are chosen at random. In year two, we began the lottery, and it grew to over 2,000 students. There are four kids on the waiting list for every one seat that is available, which means that only 25% of them will win the lottery, and 75% of them will be declared losers. Losers who are forced to go to some other school that they don't want to go to. I think it's just illustrative of tremendous pent-up demand. In business, we would call it a very strong market signal. That almost, more than any other point, describes the extreme frustration and dissatisfaction with the public school system. Bob, being Bob, hoped to serve these kids that the lottery declared losers by opening more charter schools so that no child would be left behind. But the government wouldn't allow him to. The charter school bill only allowed for 100 charters. By the mid-2005, all 100 were out. You couldn't get more charters. So yet again, Bob tried something else that once again in no way benefited his family. So I met with a small group of parents in 06, talked about the idea of a private school. 
So by 07, I opened Thales Academy with 20 kids in our corporate office. It's now grown to 2,600 students, six campuses, and we have five campuses currently under development. And my goal was to create a large private school network that would prove there is a better way. Our theme is high quality, affordable, which essentially in the private school world doesn't exist. So we picked $5,000 for K-5 as the tuition 10 years ago. We have not raised that tuition in 10 years. For context, Washington, D.C.'s public schools cost $30,000 a kid. Many top private schools are $20,000 a student. North Carolina's public schools are $9,300 a student. And Bob's Thales Academy is almost half that. Now, from a financial management standpoint, it's a formidable task. You have all these myths of small class size. When I went to high school, there was... 50-plus students in every class. It was a pretty darn good high school. So I know from firsthand experience that having 50 kids in a classroom doesn't make a darn bit of difference. Those same students, when they go to college, might be in a class of 100 or 200 or 300. Nobody's concerned about it. So the concept of small class basically is a union idea to create more jobs and make life easier on the teachers. So one of the things we have to do is have a reasonable class size, which we describe between 20 and maybe 30 at the outside. We have to eliminate every potential inefficiency. So in a K-5 building, we have an administrator and an assistant administrator, and everybody else is teaching. That allows for tremendous efficiencies. Whereas in public schools, For every single teacher that they have, there's a whole other employee not teaching. Only half of their staff are actually teaching. And to conclude, I had to ask Bob, why is he still running this company and launching schools at his age? The guy's in his 70s, and he's had this wildly successful career. Shouldn't he be on a golf course somewhere? You know, for, for many individuals who go into business, they aspire to get rich, retire, and enjoy the money. Obviously, I want to make money, but the things that money produces, mostly I'm not interested. So I'm not a sportsman. I don't care to, to go on exotic vacations. I actually love the work. I love building the business. The money is not all that important to me, even though it is a way you keep score for any business. Uh, one of my uh, associates some years ago said, you have more money to spend than anybody we know, and you spend the least amount of anybody we know. And, and the reason is that money isn't my goal. My goal is to create a great company, to have the opportunity to work with amazing people. That, to me, is my life. Going on an exotic vacation has no interest to me whatsoever. Having some exotic sports car has no interest. I believe that as your life goes on, I'm 72, your greatest contributions are coming later in life because you have this tremendous amount of experience. You've got a whole company behind you that you didn't have all those years. 
So the opportunity to serve is enormous in that time frame. To put yourself off the playing field, for me, doesn't make sense. And what a story. And we've heard this story again and again from our American dreamers, from our entrepreneurs. It's not the money. It's a scorecard. But it's the jobs. It's the company culture. It's the meaning that work brings to people's lives. Our American Dreamer segment brought to us by Job Creators Network. Bob Luddy's story. Captivaire's story here on Our American Stories. was Jeff Daniels in the infamous toilet scene from the 1994 movie Dumb and Dumber. This is Our American Stories, and now we know you don't want to hear the most annoying sound in the world, so how about some behind-the-scenes stories about the comedy classic? Here's Greg Hengler with a story. Dumb and Dumber wasn't just a huge success, raking in almost a quarter billion dollars worldwide. It also marked the feature debut of writer-directors Peter and Bobby Farrelly, whose wildly funny There's Something About Mary even outgrossed Dumb and Dumber in 1998. But it all began with Harry and Lloyd. Here's Dumb and Dumber producer Charles Wessler. Uh, give or take 90, uh, 1990 or 91, uh, Bennett and Pete Farrelly came into my office with holding a script in their hand called Dumb and Dumber. And they said, this is the funniest movie. We really love it. We really have a lot of confidence that it's going to be really great. And would you read it? And I took it home that night and I read it. And I remember I laughed out loud a lot. I like it a lot. Uh-oh. And of course I called him up and said, look, I, I really, really would like to be involved in this. It's okay! as a producer, and they said, great, let's try to do that together, and that set our, our sort of new relationship. And um, it just got turned down and turned down and turned down by every studio and every executive. I can't even see it. Come on. And we didn't get, like, no, you know, thank you very much for submitting your script. Uh, it was a very interesting screenplay. I get calls from executives saying, what a piece of crap. You are one pathetic loser. Why would you send me this? No offense. <laughs> no, none taken. Finally, like two years go by, and we're 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 all broke. I'm gonna go to the store. Yeah. Okay, just get the bare essentials. This is the last of our dough. In the meantime, while we're failing miserably, I had breakfast with Brad Cavoy about a completely separate issue. And Brad, I asked him what he was doing. He's, he was financing low-budget movies. Here's producers Brad Cravoy and Steven Stabler. I'll never ever forget reading the screenplay because it was the very first time I read something that made me want to piss in my pants. I was laughing so hard. 
So Brad brought the script back to the office. We all kind of looked at it, and I remember to this day that it was the funniest script that I ever read and the script that I laughed the most out loud as I was reading. So that night, midnight, I called up Charlie. I said, we got to meet first thing tomorrow morning. Come in. We're doing this movie. Charlie came in, and that's when I met Peter and Bobby Fairley for the first time. It's our big chance, man. <laughs> but during the meeting, Peter and Bobby Fairley started acting out the parts of Harry and Lloyd. And it was really funny. We guaranteed that we would make the movie for $2 million or less. And we started to cast the movie. We went to Steve Martin, he said no. We went to Martin Short, he said no. The film finally started to come together when we started to talk to New Line Cinema. How about a hug? And they, they had a really interesting attitude over there. Uh, Mike DeLuca kind of liked the script. Bob Shea did not like the script, but I guess they liked it enough that if they could get the right cast, they, they said they would make it. And we came up with a list of about 25 actors. And they said, if you can get two of these actors from this list of 25, we'll green light Dumb and Dumber. So you're telling me there's a chance. And uh, what we discovered was of the 25 odd actors on that list, not one said yes. New Line came back and said, look, we just finished shooting a movie called The Mask, and we love Jim Carrey. But Ace Ventura had not come out yet, so he was pretty much unknown at that point. But if you get Jim Carrey in this movie, we'll make it. We were told that we could close a deal with Jim Carrey for a million dollars any time up until the Friday that Ace Ventura opened. And in our brilliance, we didn't close that deal because he was only a TV star. Monday morning, we called up Jim Carrey's agent, and we said, okay, Let's get our contract on. Hold on, sugar. Daddy's got a sweet tooth tonight. And they said, well, we have a little, little problems on Friday. Now you have to ask yourself one question. I said, OK. Do I feel lucky? What's it going to take? Here's Wessler and Jeff Daniels. New Line, you said, finally, you know, get Jim Carrey. We got Jim Carrey. And then Pete said, Okay, I want Jeff Daniels for the other part. There was just something about it. I remember reading the script with this friend of mine, and I was going to go read for it. And uh, um, I said, is this, is this funny? And I told him about the tongue on the pole scene. Are you okay? Oh, yeah. I do, I do this all the time. You know, see, that, that's, that's funny. Snowball in the head. He, he goes, yeah, that's, that's funny. Sitting on a toilet. <clears throat> yeah, that's funny. Hmm. And they said... No, Jeff Daniels isn't funny. I mean, he's a good actor, but he's not funny. Ah! I had three agents on the phone. Two out of three guys were going, this will ruin your career. This is the end of everything. We cannot recommend more strongly that you do not do this movie. Ah! And the guy in New York, Paul Martino, I've been with since for 27 years, and Paul was the only one who said, do the movie. It's funny. Shake it off, man. Go back. One of the things they said was that Jim is going to walk all over you. I'm going, okay, well, but what about the toilet scene? What about the tongue on the pole scene? What about the snowball in the head? He's not in those scenes. So even if he is that kind of guy, which I can react to, give me a little credit, um, there's the three scenes he's not even in. Put out the fire. And then what Jim said was great. Jim said, this is a buddy-buddy movie, and I really want an actor across from me, somebody that I can react to and that will give and take. He really didn't want another comedian. 
who would just wait for Jim to finish and then try to top him. And we were reading the, uh, the hot tub scene. My hair was long, so I just kind of did this with the hair and, you know, just kind of, you know, did that. And Jim got this smile on his face. This is the life. Pete and Bobby fairly said, we knew before you guys even said a word. You know, Jim and I worked a little bit together, and, and I was, you know, I, I was having trouble getting a handle on it. How far have we gone? Jim kind of knew it and understood it. And According to this map, about an inch and a half. And how much farther we got to go? Eventually, I, I just, you know. Two feet. I just said, okay, what would it be like to have an IQ of nine? And we are going to need a smaller map, but we're never going to get there. And, you know, and so just to play the reality of that, which is all actor crap, but, you know, instead of trying to be dumb, why don't you just be that stupid? You know, so it just, I just, it literally it was, I would shake my head, you know, and, and like slosh my brain around before takes just to try to empty out any degree of intelligence that I may have had as a person. You don't comment on it, you aren't trying to be funny. You just are that stupid. Tic-tac, sir. Okay, it's a funny script, but then we're stuck with the Pete Fairley, Bob Fairley. Get the hell out of here. The idea was to just go ahead and shoot it. It's just they always, how far can we go? Where's the line? Let's cross it. The Fairley brothers are like that. They're this constant kind of searching for what's, would it be funnier if we came in having a sword fight? And then, hat, boom, boom, ops, and all that stuff. It just kept adding and adding and adding. We try to shoot the first two takes of any given setup script and then we'll say oh guys go crazy do whatever you want we got it and we know we got it in the can why don't you guys go ahead and do whatever the hell you want now, Jim Carrey is such a talented comedian and understands humor so perfectly that he gave up the best part in the screenplay so that Jeff Daniels could play it cool and that's the true spirit of a brilliant comedian whatever all the stuff that Jeff does is really funny. In fact, if you look at the movie, the fact is, I think he gets half the laughs, and Jim gets half the laughs. But it comes from a different place. When they finally got on the set, it was sort of perfect, because they got along great. Thank you, my good man. There was no competition for who was going to be funnier, or who was going to be, uh, who was going to get the, the, the goofy line. You know, when you're working with Jim, you've got so much to bounce off of and react to. and. He's such a gifted comedian. He's so smart. He's so precise. Want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? Somebody to react to that and bounce off of that. It was easy. I mean, he made it easy. It was all about whatever happens, keep going, because it could be great. Here's Stabler and actress Victoria Rowell. There's an old saying, a movie's never as good as its dailies or as bad as its first cut. But you get a feeling, and the feeling on the set as we were making Dumb and Dumber is that we were making something that was going to be really good and that we were going to be really proud of. Well, Dumb and Dumber is an anomaly. I mean, no one quite understands how such juvenile humor attracts the CEO of a corporation. And they're not ashamed to tell you that they love Dumb and Dumber. Clint Eastwood came up to me and said that happened to him. That toilet scene, he was dating some girl, he really wanted to impress her, he'd eaten the wrong thing at lunch, he got to her house to pick her up for dinner or to go out or whatever, and he needed to find the bathroom now. And to have somebody like Clint, Clint's stature, tell you that story, and I guess 
it's nice to know that the movie connected with him as well. I knew we were on to something at least unique. I had no idea that it would be received and enjoyed by so many people so many years down the road. Um, and that's a great thing, you know. The last time I looked, the Greeks were holding up two masks. And comedy should be on an equal level with drama. It really should. And whether you're sitting on a toilet or, you know, doing Shakespeare, funny is funny. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. The making of Dumb and Dumber, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything. And one of the most intriguing stories that I've come across in a long time was captured by Brantley Hargrove, who's a journalist and has written for Wired, Popular Mechanics, and Texas Monthly. We talked with Brantley about his book, The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of the Legendary Tornado Chaser, Tim Samaras. Yeah, Tim was just this uh, middle-class kid from the suburbs of Denver. He grew up uh, in this little bungalow in Lakewood, Colorado. And, uh, you know, I mean, he was kind of an unusual kid in some ways. Um, you know, most kids are playing with, you know, action figures or whatever. He was uh, taking apart his parents' appliances. Uh, I mean, he, he for some reason, he just really liked to take apart the blender the television set, uh, just to figure out what made them go. I mean, he just, he simply couldn't take for granted the fact that they actually worked. He had, he had this innate curiosity. Uh, and so, you know, his dad, just, just to keep, you know, keep him away from their appliances, uh, he actually went out into the, out into the neighborhood, out into the, you know, the sort of the outlying community and, uh, would pick up like these old radios, these big, you know, radios with the, the dials on them. And, uh, he'd bring them back to Tim just to give him something to tinker with. And, uh, Tim would, uh, he'd, 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 sometimes he'd fix them, I mean, if they weren't working. So, I mean, he had, this, he had this natural gift for uh, figuring out what was wrong with a piece of equipment, electronics, and uh, putting it back together again. Well, the, I love the title of Chapter 2, A Boy with an Engineer's Mind. He also had an imagination, too, and a movie really struck him. And maybe in the end, uh, this is, Brantley, what led him to his obsession with storm chasing. Talk about The Wizard of Oz. You know, he's probably six years old. Uh, Wizard of Oz was was on prime time. It was a Sunday evening, and his parents drug the dining room table into the living room and served dinner in there. And uh, that's where Tim saw the Wizard of Oz for the first time. And uh, I mean, he was once that tornado started churning toward Dorothy and Toto, he was completely transfixed by the image on screen. He just couldn't believe it. Um, just this this image of, of power. And uh, you know, the, the rest of the film really didn't didn't interest him all that much. He'd get kind of bored once they started hitting the yellow brick road. But, uh, you know, forevermore, he would be, he'd be drawn to that, that image. And, you know, he, he couldn't believe that there was, there were such things near his home and he wanted to, wanted to see one for himself someday. Yeah. And it's interesting. Colorado's where storms set up as they head into the great plains. Uh, talk about how that impacted him too, just where he lived, his, the geography and how that might've factored into things. Right. Well, yeah, he was, he's, he's in, he's in no, near Denver. So it's, uh, he's got, 
he's got these storms coming up against the Rockies. Um, you know, these, these, these occasionally violent thunderstorms that are known to produce tornadoes. And so he was in a, he was in a, in a region, an environment uh, where he could see such things. I mean, he did. He, you know, when he was, uh, he was a young kid, he saw his first, first funnel cloud in the sky. So, I mean, that, that, that sort of just ignited even further this fire that had first begun uh, with the Wizard of Oz. Indeed. Now, he's not your typical high school grad. A lot of kids go to college. But Tim, well, he starts knocking on the door of the Denver Research Institute, and they want him to get a resume together. And my goodness, your writing about this is fabulous. And it reminds me of the Wright Brothers, because uh, David McCullough's book about the Wright Brothers, you know, here are all these PhDs and scientists trying to get up into, into the air, and these two bicycle mechanics are, well, they're, they're sort of playing around and goofing off uh, with their own wind tunnels that they created themselves, and then out in Kitty Hawk. Talk about that application, what chutzpah it took for a kid to try and get a job at one of the top research science facilities in America. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's amazing, Chips. But, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's walking into uh, the Denver Research Institute, which is a, an, applied, uh, an applied science outfit. They do all sorts of explosives work for the military. I and mean, basically, these, these guys are just geeks who use really um, high-tech research-grade electronics to study all sorts of violent forces, among other things. And so Tim walks in, you know, he's, he's, I think he's 20 or 21, uh, you know, walking in with uh, holes in his jeans and, and a T-shirt. And he doesn't even bring in his own resume. I mean, I don't think he'd ever drawn one up. Uh, and so you know, he gets talking to the guy who runs, runs the outfit, Larry Brown. And, um, you know, I mean, Larry Brown can see this, this guy is clearly conversant, um, but you know, maybe not even the most uh, qualified person uh, that he's talked to for this job. And so he's like, all right, Tim, well, you know, this is interesting, but why don't you come back with a resume? And so Tim does, and, uh, you know, it's this yellow sheet of paper onto which he's handwritten his, um, his, his expertise, which includes working uh, at a mom-and-pop radio repair shop. So, I mean, it's not a whole lot there. But, yeah, I mean, Larry goes with his gut. He likes Tim. He, he sees that Tim has a natural ability, and he seems pretty cool, too. So he's like, all right, I'm going to give this kid a chance, and he does. And, uh, you know, I mean, but it, by the time Tim is, uh, you know, 20 years old, he's, he's got a, a Pentagon security clearance. It's amazing. Nope. It's amazing. By the nope. way, no college education, no college education, but a guy like Brown who trusted his gut instincts. I mean, you gotta, you gotta give him credit. A lot of people would have said no paper, no credentials, no job. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Brown, Brown saw something in Tim that was, I think, harder to quantify. Indeed. I love the chapter's title, this love affair with the sky. Because in the end, this is what happens with Tim. You write, quote, He begins to tackle tornadoes in the methodical way he does everything else. He studies them, figures out how they work, just as he did many years before with his mom's blender. Self-taught all the way, wasn't this man? Yeah, he completely was. I mean, this is, this is sort of a pattern that's been set up since he was a, a kid. You know, he's like, this interests me. I'm going to figure out everything I can about it. Uh, largely by myself. And that's what he did. I mean, you know, it, it, except for, uh, you know, I think this is probably the first time he ever actually enjoyed sitting in a classroom. He did take a storm spotting course and, you know, some basic meteorology through uh, Skywarn, which uh, partners with the National Weather Service. But by, by and large, he was, you know, he was teaching himself. He was reading, you know, everything he could and, uh, you know, trying to figure out, okay, how do I go out myself and find these storms, and, and how can I make myself of use to the National Weather Service? I mean, he was also one of their spotters, so 
he'd be the guy out there giving them the on the ground intelligence about what actually is happening because you know uh, uh, radar can tell us that there is a a storm that you know has some evidence of tornadic rotation but it can't necessarily tell you the tornadoes on the ground and tim would be the guy who'd be out there in the field with eyes on the storm telling them you know in fact there is a tornado or there isn't one when we return more with brantley hargrove who's written so beautifully about the life and death of storm chaser Tim Samaras. This is Our American Stories. with Brantley Hargrove, author of The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser, Tim Samaras. We were talking about the virtually non-existent state of tornado science leading up to the time when Samaras and a small band of researchers started looking at this force of nature. Tornadoes were so inexplicable, um, so poorly understood, that, uh, you know, uh, atmospheric scientists, uh, meteorologists, you know, the government was just like, hey, look, let's, let's, we can't even bother with trying to predict these things. There's no point in warning people about the possibility of tornadoes if we have really no ability to uh, predict where they're going to occur and when with any kind of specificity. And so, uh, yeah, you know, with the, uh, you know, the signal services, the Army signal services, which is, you know, initially in charge of, uh, you know, national weather forecasting, and then the Weather Bureau, I mean, it was just, it, it, was, it was the word you didn't really utter. And so, I mean, we didn't even really start making, uh, you know, any kinds of tornado forecasts until, you know, into the 1950s. I mean, it's kind of remarkable when you think about it. We just, we just did not understand them well enough to predict them. Um, and so, you know, up through, up through uh, you know, whenever Tim kind of arrives on the scene and, and begins his own research, uh, you know, we, we'd come a long way, but there were still, you know, there were still a lot of, of unanswered questions. I mean, we had just developed in the 70s, you know, the 60s and 70s, Doppler radar. And then mobile Doppler didn't even come onto the scene until uh, the 90s, which would allow us to scan at, you know, somewhat close range of uh, these tornadoes in, in detail. And so we, were ju- we just had this really essential tool come on the scene. Uh, we're, and we're, you know, we're learning quite a bit. However, I mean, there, the mobile radar, even, even when you can drag it out into close proximity with the storm, it, it, it left some blind spots. Uh, it couldn't scan in that lowest, you know, 50 meters or so. Uh, and that's a, that's a pretty crucial, a pretty crucial spot. I mean, that's where, you know, that, that's where these winds, um, you know, it's where they begin to coalesce. I mean, you know, how can you, how can you predict them if you can't understand how the low-level environment is, is connected to the broader storm environment? And so that was kind of one place that where Tim was hoping he could fill in the blanks was that this low-level environment that you know was essentially terra incognita. We knew nothing about it. We had no we had no data, no measurements from it. The chapter, the spark. There's a man who named Frank Tatum uh, from Huntsville, Alabama, and people may not know this about Huntsville, but it's one of the great science research uh, spots in the whole country. Uh, talk about the role that Frank played in young Tim's life. Yeah, Frank was was the spark, in my opinion. Um, 
you know, he was, uh, he was this, um, explosives expert, um, in there in Huntsville. And, you know, back in 89, Huntsville got hit by a, a really violent tornado. You know, it, it killed, uh, I think a couple dozen people. And, uh, you know, in the aftermath, he heard a lot of weird things that sort of struck him, uh, and, and were in some ways, you know, uh, they related to his, his own research. You know, he was hearing that there were all these people who were, uh, you know, they were feeling these tremors through the ground as the tornado approached. Uh, and I mean, these weren't yahoos who were saying this. this was like the emergency manager. It was like a preacher who was in the basement sheltering with, you know, some people from his congregation were saying, yeah, I felt these, I felt these tremors coming through the ground. And so he's like, okay, I mean, could a tornado measurably transfer energy into the ground to the extent that you know, you'd actually create some kind of shockwave? And uh, what he found, you know, whenever he went to a, a USGS, um, you know, geological service uh, uh, site where they had some, um, you know, they had some geophones in the ground, you know, he found out that they actually did. There were actually seismic signals being created by these tornadoes. And so he set out to uh, uh, build this device um, with federal funding. Uh, that he hoped would be, uh, you know, serve as an early warning network. He would he would use it to detect seismic signals uh, of tornadoes, uh, you know, and, and, and to give you know maybe a little bit better of a, an advance heads up. Uh, and so he, he he built these devices, but you know, Frank was not a storm chaser. He didn't really know how to go find tornadoes and you know put these you know somewhere near the path so that they could you know either pick up or not pick up on these uh, these seismic signals. And so he he started reaching out to all these storm chasers that he'd heard about throughout the U.S. And Tim's was one of those names who came up as, you know, kind of one of these prominent sort of legendary storm chasers. Yep. And Tatum asked him from your book, quote, can you get my invention close to a tornado? Can you help me find out if it actually works? That's quite a thing to ask a guy, isn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, if he knew Tim, he would know that was a question. It was almost as if he'd been waiting his whole life to be asked. I mean, you know, Tim had been, he'd seen this, uh, this Nova documentary on PBS uh, a few, you know, a decade before, I think, um, where, these, uh, where these scientists from the National Severe Storm Laboratories in Oklahoma University were, were, you know, going out chasing down these tornadoes with this, you know, with this instrument that they developed um, called the Totable Tornado Observatory. They were trying to deploy this instrument to get these, these long-sought-after measurements from the core of a tornado. And they weren't successful, but I mean, Tim had been captivated by this by this documentary, by the, you know this idea of these scientists going out and chasing tornadoes down. And so, what Tatum was offering him was a mission that sounded a whole lot like what these scientists had done. And so, I mean, he couldn't say no. Tim is not happy with the the, the probes that have been created. So, in the end, he creates this thing himself called the Turtle Probe. Talk about the Turtle Probe, Tim's invention. Right. Well, the turtle probe was um, uh, quite different from everything that had preceded it. Um, you know, a lot of the previous inventions, uh, you know, none of which managed to get into the core of a tornado. You know, not a lot of attention was paid to, uh, you know, the, the aerodynamic profile. And, you know, up to that point, it hadn't mattered because they hadn't gotten into a place where that would, where that would be of, of utmost importance. And Tim did pay a great deal of attention to its aerodynamic profile. He, he, he conceived this device whose, whose, whose profile was inspired actually by a previous, um, a previous instrument that had been devised by you know, another guy at uh, Applied Research Associates, where he was now working. Uh, it was an, an intercontinental ballistic missile launch vehicle that was supposed to be able to withstand a nuclear shock wave. And what Tim did is he, he took those plans 
and he, he scaled down and adapted uh, to, his, to, to his use. Uh, so he built this thing that, you know, okay, if it can survive a nuclear shockwave, uh, surely it'll be okay in a tornado. And so he, he built this device. It's about, you know, 20 inches across, about six inches tall, you know, sort of conical in shape, kind of like a, like a, a Vietnamese, uh, a traditional Vietnamese hat. Uh, and it was filled with, um, you know, pressure transducers, sensors for temperature and humidity, and, this, and a data logger that would record measurements from all these sensors uh, 10 times per second. And it was, it was you know, it was, to that point, it was uh, one of the most aerodynamically, and just, you know, in terms of the instrumentation, the most advanced uh, in-situ probe that had ever been devised. And the problem now is, as you put it in the book, the easy part was making the device, which, by the way, is not easy. But the hard part is getting a, a tornado to go over that device. That's no duck walk, and that's dangerous work. Uh, talk about uh, Tim's attitude about that. Again, he was no daredevil, but he knew to get this probe placed in the right places meant taking bigger and more profound risks with his life. Sure. Well, you know, finding tornadoes to begin with, is, is, is difficult. Uh, you know, Tim, Tim was well, well acquainted with that struggle. I mean, you know, you, for every, every tornado you see, you strike out on probably at least five other, uh, events. Um, so yeah, I mean, he, first of all, he's dealing with that, just the difficulty in finding these things. Uh, then there's the difficulty if you do of maneuvering ahead of them. So you've got to position yourself in such a way that you'll be able to stay, you know, probably roughly to the north and slightly ahead of the tornadoes. It's moving uh, to be able to drop down front and intercept. Uh, so, you know, to add to all this, uh, he also knew that if he's going to deploy this thing into the core, he's going to have to get in front of the tornado. I mean, it, it, even more, even in a more extreme position than he'd been in uh, with Frank Tatum's uh, instrument, he's going to have to wait until the tornado is really close because tornadoes, they swerve. I mean, they, they don't, they don't travel in a straight line. There are all sorts of little bobs and weaves in their tracks. And so that means he has to get really, really close, probably closer than anybody has really ever gotten um, and survived uh, to deploy this thing. This mission that he's taken on is, uh, is far more dangerous than anything he's ever done. And when we come back, we're going to continue with this remarkable story of Tim Samaras, as told by Brantley Hargrove. And the book is called The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaras. And I would urge you to go to the bookstore, pick this up, or just get it off Amazon. And again, it's The Man Who Caught the Storm. And what a writer and what a passion Brantley has for this subject. He himself, a storm chaser, and he himself deeply captivated by this magic that Mother Nature creates. When we continue, we return with the life of Tim Samaras, his story, here on Our American Story.
And we're back with Brantley Hargrove, author of The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser, Tim Samaris. At this point, people were beginning to become skeptical of Tim's mission because he kept getting near misses, like what happened in Stratford, Texas, for example. He'd been trying to deploy on several tornadoes, um, you know, the year before, and it got really close. And I think he was learning more and more just how close he needed to be uh, to pull this off. And so in Stratford, Texas in 2003, um, you know, there were, there were all sorts of risks that he was courting that day. I mean, as he maneuvered in front of this, uh, uh, this, to- uh, this oncoming tornado in uh, the Texas panhandle, um, I mean, there was, there was baseball-sized hail coming down. I mean, he could have he could easily have been uh, brained by a baseball-sized chunk of hail. I mean, that, that stuff's fatal. Uh, so he, you know, he jumps out of his minivan uh, with his, uh, you know, he's got his partner in there uh, filming for the scientific record. And there's this tornado in the distance, you know, clearly approaching. It's kind of this sort of multiple vortex circulation uh, moving in at about, you know, probably 30 miles per hour. And so Tim, uh, you know, he, he drops his, his probe. Uh, you know, they're, they're starting to be able to hear the roar of the tornado. He jumps back in the minivan and they take off and they get overtaken by the, um, you know, the rain curtains and the outer circulation. And they're getting battered by some pretty intense winds. I mean, winds, you know, approaching 100 miles per hour at least. And, I mean, they've got, they've got telephone poles bending into the road, and some are falling into the road. He's having to swerve into the oncoming lane of traffic. You know, fortunately, there's nobody out there just to steer clear of these telephone poles. And this is, I think this is the first time at least, you know, that I've heard, and I've watched a bunch of Tim's uh, storm-chasing footage. This is the first time I really heard true fear in his voice. And I think he felt at that moment like he had pushed it way too far and that, you know, they were going to pay the consequences. And I mean, he was he, was, he managed to get out, but uh, it was a, it was a really close brush. Let's fast forward to Manchester, South Dakota, because this day, June 24, 2003, changes Tim's life and it changes meteorology and storm science. Talk about that day. Yeah, this was, uh, this was a day that started out with a lot of frustration. I mean, you know, by this point, Tim has been out on the road for several years uh, trying to deploy on these tornadoes with, um, you know, limited success. You know, he's gotten close, but he hasn't gotten that singular uh, deployment that he's been shooting for. And so, you know, he, he gets onto a, a tornado in, um, a, near Woonsocket, South Dakota, and the, and the dang thing, it keeps to the fields the whole time. Tim can't deploy on a tornado in the fields. He needs it to cross a navigable road. And this thing, you know, it, it dies right before it gets to the first navigable road he could possibly deploy on. So he's, you know, he's pretty dispirited. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's June uh, 24th, I believe. And, you know, he's getting towards the end of the season. Uh, you know, this is, this is very late in tornado season, you know, after this. Uh, it looks like there's going to be a high pressure ridge. It's going to deplete all the storm potential after that. Um, but as he's collecting his probes, you know this this, this guy who's with him notices um, this this splash of golden uh, sunlight uh, refracting off of the backside of a storm to the east. And you know Tim jumps into the minivan and sees that there's a pretty vigorous radar signature um, within that storm. You know there's a, there's a hook echo. This could very well be. Uh, an ongoing tornado. So he gathers up his probes as quickly as he can and then lights off down the highway east toward the storm. And uh, as he approaches, uh, he sees that there is uh, an enormous tornado on the horizon. I mean, in, in my opinion, this is probably the biggest uh, and most violent tornado he's ever, he's ever actually encountered. 
this is this is the shot he's been waiting for really his whole life. Um, and is, is the partners with him? It's his uh, his brother-in-law, Pat Porter. Is you know he actually he actually asked, are, are we going to deploy on that thing? And Tim's like, damn right. Uh, and so he approaches this thing down the highway. It's, it's it's closing in on the highway, and he realizes that uh, that his you know his approach is all wrong. He can't deploy here. He can't accurately gauge its forward speed, um, its 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 trajectory. Uh, trying to get on that highway in front of that tornado would be almost suicide. So he kind of pauses for a second, uh, then realizes that he's got, you know, to the north, and this thing's moving off to the northeast. To the north, there's a, a good grid of uh, dirt roads. And he doesn't, you know, it's not optimal to be on dirt roads because dirt roads get wet and then they get bogged down. But he's going to give it a shot. So he figures if he heads north on this dirt road uh, and can take the next east dirt road, that he can head the tornado off, drop his probe, and then head north as the tornado moves off to the northeast. So basically he's racing the tornado to this intersection, you know, a mile or so ahead. Uh, and so he, he takes off, and it's, it's a hairy ride. I mean, the, the, the road just turns to cake batter. They're fishtailing. Um, and, you know, at various points they lose sight of the tornado in the rain. I mean, it's, it's chewing through farmhouses. There's debris drifting everywhere. Um, but he gets to this place in the road, uh, you know, at this intersection, drops his probe and, and hauls as fast as he can. And uh, the tornado runs over his probe. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a huge moment in, in, in the world of atmospheric science. You know, the first time uh, we had direct measurements from the core of a violent tornado. I mean, that was just something that uh, the research community wasn't sure that they would ever actually have. And it was this guy, this sort of lone guy. I mean, there were many times people tried to partner in with Tim, but they were going to try and tell him how to do it. And he, he had quite a number of failures in this regard, Brantley. But in the end, he had to do it his way, and he had to rely on his gut and his intuition. He laid that probe down 82 seconds before the tornado struck. That's crazy. But he managed to register the steepest drop in barometric pressure ever recorded, which got him a mention in the Guinness Book of World Records, Brantley, and obviously, it changed his life. Oh yeah, I mean, this was this was his, his name was on the lips of uh, every uh, atmospheric scientist uh, in the world today. I mean, that was a huge moment, and I, you know, it brought him it brought him a certain amount of fame. I mean, the guy was on, uh, you know, he he was on the cover of National Geographic. Uh, he was on CNN with Soledad O'Brien. He went on Oprah. I mean, Tim was, uh, you know, this was this was a big moment, and Tim uh, his life changed profoundly after that. Let's talk about his son, Paul, because ultimately he would join Tim in this life. Uh, talk about the, the relationship between father and son in the book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think at first, um, you know, the relationship between Tim and Paul was kind of like any father and son relationship in their teen years. I mean, I, I don't think they were incredibly close uh, early on. You know, I mean, I think it was just kind of the way it goes. Uh, Paul was, you know, sort of an introverted young man um, uh, who, uh, you know, wasn't sure exactly what he wanted to do with his life. Um, you know, once he graduated from high school, he sort of drifted to a couple of different options, but, you know, just none of it seemed to stick. Uh, you know, and then he started going out and chasing with Tim, and I think that changed a lot of things for Paul, both personally and, you know, with his relationship with his father. I think it brought them closer together in a way they hadn't been before, and I think for Paul, he found a sort of purpose. You know, he he discovered uh, photography, and you know, I mean, as it turned out, you know, this this guy, this young man, had an incredible eye. I mean, he was just 
unnatural, uh, both with a camera and with a video camera. And so, you know, uh, Paul starts going, uh, you know, out every season with Tim and the crew, you know, and sometimes he'll ride in, in one of the, uh, you know, one of the other cars, you know, if there's, if there isn't room in Tim's truck, but, uh, you know, he, he finds this community and this camaraderie with his father and this group of, uh, chasers and researchers that Tim travels with. Uh, and I think it was, you know, I think it was, I think it was the path Paul had been looking for. And when you get a chance, take a look at some of the photography of Paul Samaras. It's remarkable. I mean, some of the landscapes and some of the nature shots that he captures, especially in the depths of these storms, the lightning, the cloud formations, it's just poetry. He had a gift, no doubt. And when we return, the final episode, the final chapter in this harrowing story, we return with the story of Tim Samaras, as told by Brantley Hargrove, the book The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaras. More of this remarkable story here on Our American Stories. Turn with Brantley Hargrove, the author of The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaras. And Tim's goal was to get the typical tornado warning time up from about 17 minutes to a full 30 minutes. That was about 13 extra minutes, which of course could mean a lot of saved lives. Yeah, I mean, Tim, what, what he was hoping, I think, was that his data his data, and not only his data, but the, the data produced by his team. You know, he had this, he had these other uh, researchers with him who surrounded the tornado with these sedan-mounted sensors. So they would sample the environment feeding the tornado. Basically, what you know, what what in the environment is making this tornado uh, form? What's making it intensify? What's making it unravel? And so, what I think he was hoping was that his data, paired with these uh, these other researchers' data. Uh, could give us a better understanding of what sorts of mechanisms and processes uh, are in the environment that lead to these really strong tornadoes. Uh, and, 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 and some days, whenever those tornadoes don't form, what are, what are some of the mechanisms that are failing to fall into place? And so I think he was hopeful that his research could help identify something in the atmosphere on these really bad days, you know, these days like, you know, in 2011 with the Dixie Alley outbreak or, you know, uh, Moore, Oklahoma, 2013. What's, what is it in the sky on these days that, um, you know, makes these tornadoes uh, be so, you know, so intense and have such long tracks? Uh, and that's what his, uh, his research group was out there to try to figure out. Let's talk about El Reno, Oklahoma. And by the way, just not too long before El Reno, Moore, Oklahoma tornado, which you just mentioned, came through. It was an EF5. And Samaras, well, he thought it was too dangerous a storm to chase. Again, getting at that idea that he was not a reckless man. Let's talk about El Reno, Oklahoma. 
and and that final day of Tim and Paul's life? Well, at that point um, in 2013, Tim was a part of a um, a, uh, a lightning research project uh, funded by uh, DARPA, you know, this federal agency, uh, and they were you know essentially just out there with this uh, with this box van that Tim had built. Um, that had all sorts of crazy cameras in it. I mean, super high-speed cameras. You know, even one camera that could take up to a million frames per second of video. And they were hoping to understand, you know, some of these fundamental mysteries of lightning um, and, and some of the other electromagnetic phenomena that accompany lightning. And so that was their main mission at that point. You know, they, but they'd also brought along um, a, a sedan uh, for, for side chases. So on that day, uh, on May 31st, 2013, they knew that there was going to be a big storm. They were supposed to be set up somewhere far to the north of that storm to be able to photograph the lightning. The best place to photograph lightning isn't right up close to the storm. It's, it's way further to the north. Um, but as, the, as, the, as, the, as the, the shape of the day kind of came into sharper focus, as they began to see just how, how powerful this event could be, they, I think they decided, you know, hey, we can't, we can't pass this up. We've got to go, go chase this. And they probably planned on coming back and, and, and photographing lightning later that evening, um, but it didn't work out that way. So they left their they left their 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 lightning um, their lightning photography vehicle uh, in northern Oklahoma, and they drove south uh, to, towards Oklahoma City in the central Oklahoma area where where the storm was forecast to begin. And uh, they set up. Um, you know, just as the as on the southern cell of the storm system, just as it was beginning to intensify, they were in perfect position. Awesome. Brantley, I want to play for you Tim Samaris on MSNBC on the morning of May 31st, 2013. And this would be, well, a tragic and terrible day for the Samaris family. He called in not to the Weather Channel on this particular hit. It was a news channel, an all-day news channel, MSNBC. Let's take a listen to his final appearance on national television. Right now, the uh, skies are fairly clear. We do not have storm initiation, but we fully expect storm initiation probably within the next two to three hours. And uh, boy, the ingredients are coming together for a pretty volatile day. Tim, what are you watching for? What are you chasing right now? Well, at the moment, we are looking for the very special type of storm called a supercell. A supercell is a very violent uh, storm that is very capable of large hail and pretty destructive tornadoes. And so we're looking for the formation of these particular thunderstorms right now, especially in, in central Oklahoma, even along I-40 is kind of where we're currently targeting. Well, and this is... This is true. It turned into a monster, this storm, 2.5 miles wide, infested with other small tornadoes inside it. Talk about the miscalculations and mistakes Tim might have made here, Brantley, or were they even mistakes at all? And this was a mon- it turned into a monster. I mean, 2.5 miles wide. At, at its- and the thing about this tornado, miles per hour. Talk about the miscalculations or the, the mistakes that Tim may have made, um, and were they even mistakes in the end? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a tricky question. I think they were mistakes. Um, so, Tim, you know, I mean, they, they went out after the storm as they usually would any, any tornado. I mean, they were, they were in perfect position to intercept the storm, but it wasn't a regular storm. It was moving to the southeast, uh, you know, to the east, 
Uh, you know, I mean, it was, it was sort of all over the place, and they were struggling to keep up with it. And, and what was worse is that, you know, for a large part of their chase, um, this monster tornado was rain-wrapped. Um, it was completely obscured by rain. They couldn't see what it was doing. Uh, they couldn't see how explosively it was growing and how quickly it was beginning to move. Um, and there were just a lot of things that went wrong along the way, you know, as they were trying to, you know, get in closer to this tornado. You know, at one point, uh, they actually they thought they were going to be able to take a, an east turn that would prevent them from having to drive too close to the tornado. But that turn ended up being a dead end. So they had to go even farther south toward this tornado and actually ended up um, traveling into uh, the, the outer circulation, into the debris core of this tornado, actually getting hit by some debris. They had to drive then north out of there and then continue along east to try to get ahead of this tornado. And so they were losing ground all the while. Um, and then eventually, you know, after they crossed uh, U- U.S. Highway 81, that was kind of it was sort of one of their last chances to, um, you know, to get out of the way of this thing. But they kept going because they couldn't see what was happening. I mean, they, they, they could not see the tornado. And they didn't realize by this point that it was – you know, it, it was moving, you know, the, the, the tornado, the larger tornado itself was moving at highway speeds, and it was starting to hook to the north, uh, and that it had this um, this sub-vortex, this tornado within the tornado that, uh, you know, contained some really, really powerful winds. Uh, I mean, they, were, they later found winds in this tornado, you know, well in excess of 300 miles per hour. Uh, and so they couldn't see this thing whenever it, whenever it ran them over. Uh, they didn't know that they needed to either stop or turn north to get out of the way. And, uh, you know, I mean, when this when this sub vortex came out of the uh, it would have come out of the east. I mean, it just it was the last place where they would have thought a tornado would come at them from. But uh, it caught them. It caught them off guard. They just they came up against the wrong tornado at the wrong time in the wrong place. Indeed. I'm going to read from the book and folks pick up the book. The man who caught the storm. It's terrific. Once you start it, you can't put it down. It reads like almost a police procedural. A plot just hurdles along to this really tragic end. In all of these years, Tim has learned to see the ticks and patterns of the vortex. His probes aren't all that have entered the unknown, glimpsing places no one alive had ever seen before. Tim has as well. And at these moments of extremity, it has always been his talent to see when the door is closing. He has always been able to find the seam and to slip through to safety. But this time, it's too late. This is the tornado he can't outrun. Very harrowing. Let's talk about what the finding was, because, my goodness, the Chevy Cobalt that he was in was really tossed almost a half a mile away, and a man named Sergeant Doug Girton of the Canadian County Sheriff's Office discovered a car sitting in a field after that tornado had passed. What did he discover, Brantley? Right, well, he, uh, you know, he was, as he was, you know, traveling, traveling along this dirt road uh, looking for, you know, injured people, you know, whatever he could find. Uh, he, he saw this glint of white out in a, out in a canola field. And, you know, when he went to investigate further, it was, you know, it was a sedan, but it was, it was just mangled. You know, it looked like, um, uh, you know, it looked like it'd been stripped down basically to the chassis. Um, and, uh, you know, he found, he found Tim inside, um, and, uh, you know, didn't realize at first, you know, who this guy was, but it kind of seemed like he might be a storm chaser. There was some kind of gear that was in the car that was synonymous with storm chasers. And when he finally pulled Tim's wallet, you know, out of his back pocket and, and saw the name, you know, he finally, you know, realized, you know, who he was, who he was looking at. Because Tim, you know, Doug Gurton had seen uh, uh, storm chasers on Discovery Channel before. And so 
you know, from that moment on, he, he, he did all this business with dispatch through his cell phone because, you know, he worried that, you know, if people listening to a scanner pick this up, they would, you know, they would converge on his location. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, when he found Tim, you know, that was officially the first moment that, you know, uh, storm chasers had ever been killed in a tornado, as hard as that is to believe. And I want to thank Brantley Hargrove, who you've been listening to for this entire story, and his book, The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaras, is just a remarkable read. Buy it for you and the family. It is not a sad story. Tim died doing what he wanted to do. By the way, his son died too, 25 years old. And the wife wrote this spectacular letter honoring Tim's life and all the work that all these men and women do to protect us and help save lives. And we're going to listen to Tim as we go out talking about the thing he loved to do most, his life story here on Our American Stories. You know, I've been doing this for 20 years. I enjoy the hell out of it. I really do. Out here watching the the great clouds, the great storms, you never know exactly what you're going to find. (laughs) 